Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami In the last day, today and last night, we've been reading the names of so many people. So many people suffering. So much agony and hardship. So much misery all around us. It's so unbearable. How do we accept it all? How do we take it? Heart attacks, aneurysms, suicide, cancer, strokes, Alzheimer's, motor neuron disease, plucking the life out of so many young and vibrant people. Old age, sickness, disease, decay, snuffing out the lives of so many elderly people who still have a lot of living that they want to do. What does it all mean? Death is all around us in nature. We're coming into the season now where everything is dying. This is the natural law. This is not something new. And yet time and again we keep pushing it out of our lives, trying our best to pretend that we aren't going to die, that we won't grow old, that we'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise until the last moment and then finished. But even if we were never, never sick a day in our lives, we still die. And that's okay. That's what bodies are meant to do. And yesterday we talked about dying before we die. And we didn't mean that we should commit suicide before the time comes. That's not what we know. We didn't mean that. What we mean by this is using this practice, this meditation, this contemplation to understand our true nature, to go deeply into the mind to investigate and study who is it that we really are. Because what dies is not who we are. We are completely identified with our bodies 
we think, this is me. I am this body, I am these thoughts, I am these feelings, I am these desires. I am this wealth that I have, these beautiful possessions, this personality. But that's where we go wrong. And through our ignorance, we go on chasing after shadows, dwelling in delusion, and being unable to face the storms that life brings us when they come. We're unable to stand like those oak trees on the rim of the Amaravati perimeter that stay all winter long and weather every storm that comes their way. Come October, they drop their leaves so gracefully. Come spring, they bloom again. Goings and comings, the births and deaths, the seasons of our lives. And when we are ready, or when our time comes to die, we may not be ready. In fact, we might thrash. We might resist a lot. But if we can prepare ourselves by investigating who it is that we really are, then we can be more alive now. We can live consciously, and when the time comes, we can die consciously, and in dying peacefully, totally open, the leaves fluttering down, just like that. Then our death, a peaceful death, will be a gift, a blessing to the world. because it will only be the natural dissolution of the elements of the body returning to where they belong. So we chase shadows. But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't love each other that we shouldn't feel anything when someone dies that we love. But that we be aware of what it is that we're feeling. What is grief, really? If we're attached to the person, if we're attached to their body, to be a certain way for us, we want them to be a certain way for us, then it's only natural that when they die, we will grieve, we'll feel a great loss, the shattering of the mirror. They are the mirror of our true nature, of the unconditioned that is within us. That's what love, pure love, can bring out in us. So if we can abide in non-attachment, in the unconditioned, in the realization that we are the ever-changing. Our real essence is the deathless, pure awareness that doesn't die. 
And so in our relationships with our family, we can really use non-attachment as our refuge. That doesn't mean that we don't love. It means that we are not dependent on our perceptions of our children, of our mothers and fathers, as being who we think they are, or believing that our happiness depends on them loving us and us loving them and them not dying and not leaving us. It means that we're able to open up to the rhythm of life and death, to the natural law, to the Dhamma, because death, as I said yesterday, death is Dhamma. Everything that arises has the nature to cease. All conditioned phenomena that arise have the nature to cease. You've all heard of Marpa, the great Tibetan meditation master, the teacher of Milarepa. When Marpa's son died, he wept bitterly. And one of his pupils came up to him and said, Master, why are you weeping? You teach us that death is an illusion. And Marpa, through his tears, said, Death is an illusion, and the death of a child is an even greater illusion. The death of one's child is an even greater illusion. What he was showing his disciple in that moment is that, yes, he could understand the truth that all conditioned phenomena, all that is conditioned, that has the nature to arise, has the nature to cease. Even in understanding that, he could still be a human being. He could feel what he was feeling. He could open to his grief. He could be fully present. Acknowledge They missed his son. There is nothing incongruous about feeling our feelings, about touching our pain, at the same time that we understand the truth of the way things are, the truth of the way it is, the truth of winter, summer, spring, and fall, the truth of our birth, our aging, our sickness, and our death. When the Buddha was still Prince Siddhartha, before his enlightenment, he had everything. He had what most people in the world are running after. As they push death farther to the edge of their lives, as they push the acknowledgement of mortality, morbidity, and suffering to the farthest extreme of their consciousness, running after riches, running after property, running after fame, running after business, success, power. The Buddha had all of that. He was a prince. He lived in a palace. He had a wife and a child. He had all the pleasures of the senses. He had a different palace for every season. And if any of you have seen the dramatization, the little Buddha, you may have 
you may remember if you've read the suttas, you may recall that his father tried desperately to protect him from seeing the ills of life. He must have known that his son was wise and would not want to take on the inheritance of, the, of his kingdom should he sense that there was something else to all of this. But he couldn't hold him back. And one day the Buddha rode out of the palace and saw what he had to see. The four heavenly messengers. Some of us might think it's contradictory that a heavenly messenger could come in the form of a very sick person. What's so heavenly about a very sick person? But it is, it's a divine messenger. Because suffering is our big teacher, as Colin mentioned in his notes. The death of a dear friend taught him the truth of the first noble truth of suffering. There is suffering. What is so heavenly about the second heavenly messenger seeing a very old man hovering along? And what is so heavenly about seeing a corpse riddled with maggots and flies decaying on the funeral pyre. These were the things that the Buddha saw that opened his eyes to the truth about life. And the fourth heavenly messenger was a samana, a monk. Could have been a nun, but monk. Not important. A monk, a renunciant, a symbol of renunciation, of someone searching for the truth about life and death. Someone who had given up the world to discover within himself the reality that is to be discovered. Why do people climb Mount Everest? Because it's there, they say. I'm not climbing it, but there is an, a Himalaya in here. And I want to climb that Himalaya. I don't need to go to Everest. I couldn't even if I tried. So that's where this renunciate was pointing the Buddha to the other reality that he could discover within himself. And that set him on his journey. These messengers point us to the way of truth because we're running in the opposite direction. We are running in the way of ignorance and selfishness. Completely caught up in delusion, confusion, wrong view. There's a crazy wisdom story about Nasruddin again. Nasruddin was told that if he spread a certain herb around his house, it would keep away the tigers. So he collected a lot of these herbs, <coughs> as you say in England, excuse me, and he began spreading them all around his house. 
and his neighbor saw Nasruddin crawling around on the ground, spreading these twigs and roots around the circumference of his house, and he said, Nasruddin, what are you doing? He said, I'm creating a protection from the tigers. And the neighbor said, but there aren't any tigers around here. And Nasruddin said, you see, it works. (laughs) What is it that we are really looking for in life? We're looking for happiness, for safety, for safe refuge, for peace. And where are we looking for those things? collecting more and more possessions, having to have bigger and bigger locks on the door, alarm systems, rig your car with every kind of burglar alarm. They have these gadgets that now, on the new cars, you push a button, and if you... My father showed me this when I was with him. If you're far away in in a parking lot, You can make your car start beeping in case you forgot where you parked it. (laughs) And um, he he got a kick out of doing this. We'd we'd come to the parking lot after being somewhere and see of cars. And sometimes we'd forget where it was, so he'd press this button and it would start beeping and making this terrible noise. And I'd say, Daddy, shh, don't do that. He'd say, no, no, it's also good. It'll scare away a burglar. We are constantly armoring ourselves against each other, increasing the sense of separation by having more possessions. By having more degrees. And then the more PhDs you have next to your name, the more respect you expect. So you're constantly at the verge of disappointment if people don't show you enough respect. You're constantly on the verge of disappointment if you don't make that business deal or if you don't get that raise in your salary. This is not to put down the material realm. Not at all. We need things. We need food. We need clothing to protect us. We need shelter, we need warmth, we need a place to sleep, a place to rest, we need friendship. There's a lot that we need to make this journey. But our attachment to these things and our attempt to fill ourselves, to fill the emptiness in our hearts with more and more stuff, with entertainment, with distraction, with a collection of CDs and cassettes and all the best music in the world and going to the most exotic places on holiday or having fantastic time going out for dinner at different restaurants and constantly trying to fill the hunger and still We can't fill it because we're looking in the wrong place. And so when somebody 
suddenly gets ill, loses a leg, has a stroke, is faced with death, gets AIDS, and has to bear unspeakable suffering, what do we do? Where is the refuge? The distance from our pain, from our wounds, from our fear, from our grief, is the distance from our true nature. Our minds create the abyss, that huge chasm. And how do we get across? How do we close that gap? How do we get close to our true nature, to the unconditioned, which is love, pure love in itself, untarnished, not leaning towards anything, not pushing anything away, but holding everything in one compassionate embrace. What will cross that distance? It is love, the heart. Coming deeply into our hearts, we cross. We cross the abyss and we learn the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is pain. Grief is grief. Loss is loss. We can accept. But suffering is what we add on to it when we thrash, when we deny, when we resist, when we push away, when we run, when we say, no, I can't. I did it today. I felt that feeling when I was reading the names of my grandparents, my aunts and uncles and their children, who were murdered and their naked bodies thrown into big pits during the Holocaust, I too felt this enormous pain that I didn't know I was going to feel. Grief comes at the most inconvenient times. Never mind. Be there for it. Open to it. Allow it to be. It's not a failure. It's not a punishment. It is life. This is what it means to take this human journey. So the difference between pain and suffering is the difference between freedom and bondage. Because if we are able to be with our pain, we are able to accept and investigate and heal. If it's not okay to grieve, then it's not okay to look at it, to investigate it, to hold it in your heart, and to be at peace with that feeling. And that's slavery, because that feeling then is where we're holding, where we grasp, where we cling, and where we suffer. 
the naked page on its own, we can heal into life. We can let our suffering die. That's the death we need to die. Yes, it's unfair, we think, when a young child dies. This has been happening for millenniums. When my mother was 18 years old, war broke out in Germany, 1939. And being Jewish, she and her father had to flee. They were put in the Kovno ghetto in Lithuania. And they managed to escape from the ghetto before it was completely exterminated. And they hid in the forest like animals, eating I don't know what. And then at the age of 58, she developed Alzheimer's. And for the last 18 years of her life, 10 years of which she didn't even recognize me, she was a mental and physical cripple. Is that fair? <coughs> so much tragedy. Is it fair that there's a tidal wave that wipes out villages, a hurricane that blows the Atlantic Ocean over a whole coastal region and causes thousands of dollars or pounds in damage and many, many lives lost? Is it fair that the Hutus and the Tutsis are massacring each other to death? Is it fair that we are in constant conflict in our own families, closing out of our hearts our own husbands and wives, our own sons and daughters, our own grannies and grandpas, shoving them out of sight in nursing homes so we don't have to see their pain and suffering? This is what our society is about. What's fair? Living in delusion, we create so many prisons. We are unable to even love the person sitting next to us, let alone ourselves. Or perhaps I should put it the other way around. We are not even able to love ourselves. If we can't open our hearts to the deepest wounds if we cannot cross the abyss that the mind has created through its ignorance, selfishness, greed, hatred, and delusion, then we are not going to open our hearts. Then we will not be able to finish the business of this life when our time has come. And that, might, that time might be tomorrow might be tonight. So what this all means is taking responsibility 
for what we feel. Taking responsibility not just for our actions, because we know, we know deep in our hearts how important it is to do good, to serve people, to be kind. We know the results that that brings for ourselves. When we speak or act with an unkind manner or in a cruel way to someone, then we're the ones that really suffer because that is locked deep in our consciousness somewhere. And in order to release it, we have to come very close. We have to open to it, acknowledge it, forgive ourselves, and have the intention not to harm anyone by body speech or even thought. And then when we do, to forgive and start again, it's okay. But the intention, the understanding of kamma, because this good intention, this pure intention, this understanding of how important it is to walk this path towards goodness and wisdom from moment to moment, not just when we're on retreat, Meditation is all the time. Meditation is coming into union with our true nature. The unconditioned accepts all, but is in total peace with all. Total union, total harmony. And as long as we're holding one negative thing in our hearts towards ourselves or anyone else, we will not realize our true nature completely. We will not be free. Taking responsibility for what we think, that's getting very refined. But can we start with taking responsibility for our actions? And so today when I asked you to contemplate three things that you've done in your lives that you feel very good about. Those three things you've taken responsibility for, they help you in your present practice to feel confidence, trust, energy to keep going. <coughs> the momentum for mindfulness. And those three things that you didn't feel good about, perhaps a dark cloud over consciousness. And this is very wholesome. Moral shame and moral fear. Hi otapa. Knowing recognizing when we've done something that we feel was not right. We regret, and there is forgiveness. We are human beings, we make mistakes. 
But it is important to recognize and learn from the mistake. Learn from our limitation, from our weakness, and start again. And moral fear, which is the intention not to repeat that, because we know the kama, we know the result, we know that what what conditions and what is the cause and condition for goodness is goodness. And ill will is ill will. And greed, greed conditions more greed. And hatred conditions more hatred. Loving-kindness conditions more loving-kindness. And wisdom is the cause and condition for greater wisdom to arise. So knowing this, we can live more skillful lives. One time when the Buddha was giving a teaching, he held up a flower and the Venerable Mahakasapa, one of his great devotees and disciples, smiled. And there's a mystery of why did Venerable Mahakasapa smile when the Buddha held up this flower? What is it that we see in the flower? In the flower we see. We see the conditioned nature of phenomena. We see the nature of beauty and decay. We see the suchness of the flower. We see the emptiness of impermanence. All the teaching is contained in that flower. All the 84,000 suttas are contained in that flower. The Buddha taught two things suffering and the path leading to the cessation of suffering suffering and non-suffering so why are we so afraid of death it's because of our ignorance because we have not understood suffering we have not understood the natural law and we have not understood that there is non-suffering. If there is birth, there is death. And if there is non-birth, then there is the deathless, the unborn, undying, uncreated. Love, the supreme, the magnificent, Nibbana. What is Nibbana? It's like a flame gone out. The death of desire. The cooling of the ashes. In pain we burn. But with mindfulness, we use that pain to burn through to the ending of pain, to the cooling, the stilling, It's not something negative. It is sublime. It is a complete freedom from all suffering. Because of a realization, because of a wisdom, not because of annihilation, 
not because there is nothing, but because there is emptiness. And in that emptiness, all things can abide. All things come to fruition. A human being is like a candle. We are all like different candles, different lengths. And we burn just as we're meant to burn. Each one of us has our lifespan. We have the genetic combination based on karma, based on causes and conditions that arose through our birth, sustain through our life, and die according to their law. But karma is not fatalistic. Karma is not just that everything is already designated. So-and-so will die at 20. So-and-so at 55. So-and-so at 33. This person from AIDS and another person from a car accident, it's not that it's all determined. If that was karma, then where is the factor of wisdom? Yes, we have a choice. We can choose the Eightfold Path, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right concentration. We can choose the path of freedom. And in that way we can transform. We can end karma there. It doesn't mean that we won't die, of course, because the body is a conditioned thing. It arises according to conditions and decays and dies. That is something we cannot change. But what we can change is the direction we are headed. And believe me, if you don't change the direction in which you're headed, then you're going to get where you're going. Think about it. In this very moment, we can transform ourselves. We can free ourselves. Nibbana is not out there in the future. It is the intersection of the timeless with the time. We have to let go the future, let go the past. It doesn't mean we forget the people we love, the jobs we do, the schedules we have to keep, our duties, our commitments, our obligations. No. But in every single thing that we do, we pay close attention. We open. We allow life to come towards us. Don't push it away. We allow the moment to be all that we have. We live contemplating (coughs) things, understanding things as they really are and not in a veil of deluded desire. And so in that way, Nibbana is this moment, (coughs) the ceasing of the fires of greed, hatred and delusion the cessation of suffering.
we're all able to do this. A candle has a light. That light, one little candle from this shrine, can light so many other candles and is not diminished by it, is it? And in that way, we are not diminished by tragedy. We are not diminished by our suffering. If we can abide with it, make peace with our anger, make peace with death, realizing who we really are. And in that way, we are like lights in the world. And our life becomes a blessing for everyone, for ourselves, for each other. The most secure place to hide a treasure of gold is in some desolate, unnoticed place, says Rumi. Why would anyone hide treasure in plain sight? And so it is said, joy is hidden in sorrow. Joy is hidden in sorrow. The great illumined master Marpa is weeping over his child. Does that tragedy of a young child dying take away from his wisdom? Or is it just the beautiful humility of a great man. A great teacher. I want to encourage each and every one of you to keep investigating. Keep letting go of your fear Remember that fear of death is the same as fear of life. What are we afraid of? If we look deeply in our sorrow and understand it for what it really is, then the wisdom, the realization that it's not my sorrow, it is just sorrow. Ah! We breathe into it, and there is that joy again. Joy and sorrow can come together. Life and death. There is no more guilt when we feel happy and we've just lost our best friend. It is still possible to live, to be a full human being, to completely accept suffering, to grieve, and yet to rejoice at the way things are, at our potential, 
to free ourselves 